two from the far right and the far left. If you're sick of tracking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Hello, America. We are back with you across this great land, and we are so thankful you're listening to our new show. We are here this week remembering Pearl Harbor 82 years ago. We are going to honor a special veteran this week as a part of that remembrance who made it big in both the civilian world and the military world, in the Air Force and in Hollywood. (gasps) Who am I talking about? Stay with us to find out in our greatest American hero segment. We will tell you all about him. And we are talking politics as usual, of course. In our poli sci for the normal guy portion of the show, we will discuss presidential succession. What does that mean? Well, if the president dies, the vice president becomes the president, right? It's a little deeper than that. And we will go a little deeper than that. So we'll explain. And in a fun little segment we introduced a few weeks ago that we call the race, the polls and the political trolls. We talk about Donald Trump showing strength in the polls and growing in both the Republican primary and gaining traction nationwide against Joe Biden in both the national polls and the battleground polls. Who will he choose to run with him as vice president? This could get really interesting. As we discussed last week, the vice president is now a very important position. And we will have a little silliness this week at the expense of President Biden in our honorary Dan Quayle moment of the week. And finally, an inspiring quote, one that is quite timely for the war in Israel in a new feature we call one inspired quote or a big fat political joke. We will discuss this quote. And coming up later, a new segment, we will highlight a movie we like. This is going to be a regular deal. And we'll talk all about movies that we love in a new segment we call Cinema That Protects Us From Political Correctness. So stay here for that one. Well, ho, ho, ho. All right. But first, here we go with our first feature in Poli Sci for the Normal Guy. Poor girl. We're not leaving out girls, but it just rhymes. It's just a fun name. We talk presidential succession. Well, first, what is it? What does presidential succession mean? Well, it means who becomes the president if the president dies, resigns, becomes disabled, for whatever reason is removed from office by the 25th Amendment, let's say, or perhaps gets impeached. Then comes who is the next president? Me! Well... We always start with the vice president. This is easy. This was set up in the Constitution very easily from the beginning. But the rest is not so easy. So we go back first to the Presidential Act of 1947, which cleaned everything up, believe it or not. This made it very simple. (laughs) But throughout history, that has changed around. (laughs) From having the president pro tempore after the vice president or the speaker of the house or different members of cabinet, blah, 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 blah. And it kind of changed around during administrations. But in 1947, due to the threat of nuclear war, Congress got together and said, well, we can't have this hanging over us. We need to have a definite plan in case a big attack comes. We need to know who is going to be the president in case 
we were to get bombed and a big part of our government were to be wiped out, who would be the next person that would take over so our government is not left in disarray? And then you would have arguments over who is actually the president or who's actually in control. The Constitution is always in play, though. Yes! And let's make it clear on who can be president. There are two requirements set in the Constitution. First, they must be born in the United States, natural birth in the United States, no questions asked. And second, they must be at least 35 years old. That's in the Constitution. You can't be younger than that. <gasps> Sorry, even if you were to sue on the basis of ageism, it doesn't work. The Constitution mandates that. If not, if you're not one of those two things, then we skip down <laughs> in the order of the line of succession. These other jobs can have people who are not born in the United States or who are under 35 years old, but you can't be in the line of succession for the presidency. So here's the current line of succession for the presidency, beginning with the vice president, we go down to the Speaker of the House, yes. then the president pro tempore of the Senate, and usually that's the longest tenured senator in the major party, but it changes around, just depends on the power of that person, different things like that. Then it goes to Secretary of State, then Secretary of the Treasury, then Secretary of Defense, then Attorney General, then Secretary of the Interior. That's a fun one. Ooh. Then Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Commerce, then Secretary of Labor. Yes. We're at number 11 now, in case you're counting. Secretary of Health and Human Services. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Ooh. Then Secretary of Transportation. Then Secretary of Energy. Bet you didn't know we had this many cabinet positions. <gasps> then Secretary of Education. Then Secretary of Veterans Affairs, which is a more recently added cabinet position. And then the most recently added cabinet position. And that's how the order was set, is by who was the oldest cabinet position and which one's the youngest cabinet position. And the newest cabinet position is the Secretary of Homeland Security, which was added during the Bush administration. For a while, in the early years of the United States, it was unclear if the president left office for whatever reason, whether the vice president actually even became the president. So there wasn't really a clear line of succession to begin with without this presidential act in 1947. <laughs> in fact, in 1841, to be exact, April 4th, 1841, President William Henry Harrison became the first president to die in office. His vice president was John Tyler, and he wasn't sure if he became the president automatically or not. So at first there was some hemming and hawing around and then finally Tyler himself just said, I am the president. Yay! And Congress said, okay. <laughs> and until we got all the way to the 25th amendment, which made it conclusive, there was some doubt about whether or not the vice president actually became the president. Now it is an accepted fact that the vice president succeeds to the presidency under the Constitution and that the office is vacated for whatever reason. It doesn't matter what is happening. If there's no president, the vice president becomes the president. In 1792, the second Congress used its authority under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6, provided for succession to the presidency in the event neither the president nor the vice president were able to perform the duties of the office. Under that succession act, the presidency passed to the pro tempore of the Senate <laughs> and then to the Speaker of the House. In 1886, though, Congress changed the presidential succession to the heads of the cabinet departments in order in which the departments had been established. They didn't want congressional members 
getting over to the executive branch. In 1947, finally, Congress passed the Presidential Succession Act, which put it back to the way it kind of had meant to be by the original founders. This was followed by the Speaker of the House, then the President pro tempore, and then by the department heads. And there's the curious case of Woodrow Wilson. Now, we get into some weird stuff when it comes to what happened under each administration, like in the case of William Henry Harrison and John Tyler. Different things happened, weird stuff happened. When a president died, they did different things of moving in or moving out. In fact, Jackie Kennedy was really slow to move out after John Kennedy was assassinated. And Lyndon Johnson gave her all the time she needed to move out of the White House. I mean, it was it, there's some really weird stuff that I could tell you about, but it would take forever. I'm gonna tell you about one little story though, because this is an interesting one. Ah. Woodrow Wilson had been ignoring, basically, warning signs of his health for a while before taking office. And in 1919, after having several little strokes and some neurological problems, he had a massive stroke and he really never recovered while he was president. In fact, I don't really think he ever recovered at all. He only lived three more years. When his cabinet suggested that the vice president take over, Edith Wilson, his wife, and his doctor, a Carrie Grayson, conspired together to watch over him, guard his condition, pass notes over to Congress and the public, let them know what's going on, but not let them have access to the president. And for about a year, this left the United States without a real president in charge. Many historians believe that Mrs. Wilson secretly ran the government using notes from Wilson as a way to tell the government what to do. She may have really been the first female president in a way. In her autobiography, she claimed she had a quote, stewardship of the government, making only minor little decisions and leaving the big ones to cabinet members and the president himself. However, because of the power of that stroke and other information historians have been able to glean about it, some think President Wilson was unable to make any decisions. In any case, she had been helping him campaign before. She'd been helping him in his administration. She was a mover and a shaker, and she was very intelligent. She could make a lot of decisions. And so she may have really been handling things for him. We may never know the full story behind this because everything was kept tightly shut. Anyway, he made a recovery and lived three more years, but he was never in full health again, and he never seemed like himself. So that's one interesting story on the presidential succession. And that is why Congress put some of these acts into order is because we needed to have some firm set facts about who should take over in what situation and when. And something else that's not talked about frequently, but they have now made a hit show, is the reality of a designated survivor. The designated survivor is someone who is set aside out of the cabinet members to survive in case of some severe attack that would wipe out most, if not all, of the government when they convene together for meetings, such as the oath of office, the State of the Union address, other official state events like funerals, etc. The survivor is chosen and occasionally changes, just depending on who's chosen, and they're placed in an undisclosed location. They are not told until just a few weeks before they are to be chosen and put in the place. 
This individual must meet the constitutional requirements to serve as president of the United States that I laid out earlier, and their identity is made public now. It was once kept a secret, but since 1984, it's been made public. They are accompanied by Secret Service. They have the nuclear football near them, and they have high security. <laughs> they are allowed to watch whatever's going on, and so if it's during the State of the Union, they're allowed to watch the State of the Union. They're allowed to you know, keep in contact with whatever's going on. They're allowed to go kind of wherever they want as long as it's secure. And they can watch from a undisclosed location. So the interesting thing is they are in the presidential su succession. So they have to be one of those people listed, but they are allowed to kind of meander about. Ah. <laughs> I would put them in a bunker if it were me, but you know, that's what they do. So here is the current presidential succession as of right now with the current names who are on the list for president. It's Vice President Kamala Harris, uh. followed by Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, mm. President Pro Tempore of the Senate, Patty Murray, <gasps> followed by Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, Yarr. then Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, Attorney General Merrick Garland, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, How do you? Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, Secretary of Labor Julie Sue, Secretary of Health and Human Services Xavier Becerra, Code Blue. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Marsha Fudge, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, and Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. Now, you may notice there's a couple left out. The ones who were left out are not eligible <gasps> to be president of the United States. Either they're under 35 or weren't born in the United States of America. Oh! So that gives you a little glimpse into presidential succession. It so far has never been used beyond the level of vice president. But if we keep electing older and older presidents, and if our vice presidents start becoming older, <laughs> this situation could come to fruition. We could get into issues if we start throwing around impeachment too, as if it's a toy to be played with, uh, instead of only being used in unusual situations. I certainly want impeachment to be used when it's necessary, but not for every single president like it has been either threatened or used since Bill Clinton. No. I hardly call this a real tool at that point. Our maturity level in this democracy must be better than what it is right now, or presidential succession is going to become very important. We need to only use it in extreme situations. You betcha. Otherwise, we're going to get into situations we don't want. It would not be a good thing for our democracy to keep throwing people out of office or to keep threatening that. It's a good thing to discuss issues. It's a mature thing to discuss issues where we don't agree. It's a good thing to sit down face to face and try to work out issues. It's even a better thing to figure out ways to compromise on issues. That's called maturity. And that's what we used to do in the United States of America. I would like to see it done a lot more. It would be a good thing for our democracy if we don't use presidential succession at all, especially in the case of disaster or war and all that good stuff, but especially not fighting with each other. I would like to see that not happen. Well, coming up next, we will discuss a hero of World War II who made one of the best 
Christmas movies you will ever see. Yes. Who am I talking about? Well, stay with me and we will find out together who this special hero is. your hero. Do you ever really think about this? Have you modeled your life after someone? Maybe someone you know, maybe someone in your life, maybe your father, your mother, grandfather, maybe someone who you've looked up to in the celebrity world, a coach, maybe someone that you've known, a band director, maybe someone that you inspire to be, maybe someone you respected. I hope it isn't someone silly, like an artificial hero like Spider-Man or someone who doesn't really exist, the Incredible Hulk or Superman or somebody like that. You need to find a real hero, a flawed actual man or woman who had to overcome something in life to get to where they got to, who had to get past something, who had to find themselves and get to a point to where they achieved something. Well, sometimes in life, we find someone we can really emulate who didn't have that many flaws, at least apparently to us all, and didn't have as many demons to get past. And in this week's Great American Hero segment, we are going to talk about one of them. This is almost a legendary man in his own time, was a mythical comedic actor, the legendary Western movie star, a man everybody knew but may not have really known because he was a military hero, a World War II hero, and continued his career in the military for years afterwards. He flew bombers, and yet he is listed on the American Film Institute as the number three greatest 
acting star of all time. (laughs) You're probably speechless without words at this point, so I'm going to break the spell. I am speaking of a great American hero, the one and only Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, or James Maitland Stewart, as he was born on May the 20th, 1908. Many of you may not know that he grew up in Indiana. Ooh. Okay. That is Indiana, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Uh. That was the name of the town. Indiana, Pennsylvania. That's right. For those getting ready to argue with me about, no, he grew up in Pennsylvania, or worry about my sanity, no worries. But um, anyway, Jimmy Stewart was a great athlete, a musician, and an occasional actor growing up. He really liked being an athlete a lot more than an actor. It's a grand slam! He was fortunate to attend Princeton, though, and there is where he found his art. He earned a degree in architecture that he never used in any way. So don't worry, parents, when your kids decide not to use that expensive degree that you paid for, uh, think of guys like him and what happened with their degree, and maybe they'll turn out okay, or maybe they'll turn out to be great, like Jimmy did. Jimmy at Princeton made a lifelong friend, and maybe, just maybe, this is where his life started. A guy you may or may not have heard of, a guy named Henry Fonda. This probably influenced his career decisions. He joined the University Players and earned a Broadway role in the show Carrie Nation. It did not go well for him. But in this, he was just getting started, as we like to say. Yes! He was just beginning to grow his greatness. Jimmy was just turning into a great actor at this point. Early in his career, he and Henry Fonda shared an apartment together. Imagine what that was like. He was in a number of films before finally making a big hit in the 1936 musical comedy Born to Dance. In 1938, he starred in a Frank Capra film, You Can't Take It With You. And this relationship with Frank Capra would prove monumental later in his life. But his big moment in Hollywood, at least for America's purposes, came in 1939 when he starred in Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In this film, he portrayed a young, idealistic politician who takes on corruption. He showed his acting prowess in this. He also showed his emotional love for our country, and Americans ate it up. Despite the fact I think he should have won the Oscar for this, and he did get a nomination, his first Academy Award nomination for this film. He made a huge impression, though, that stuck with people. And this movie made him a hero, both in my book and the American People's book. Yes! He became this character to a lot of people because he was this character in the movie. You would have thought he was this guy in real life, and maybe he was, indeed. Instead, I think, he was really mad at Washington for corruption and spoke out against it, using his performance in the movie. Uh... In any case, his performance was a game-changer, both for him and for politics in some ways. The following year, he took home the Oscar for the Philadelphia Story. He co-starred with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, two huge names and two big movie stars in this well-developed romantic comedy. But his love for our country stepped in next. So he takes home an Oscar. He's in this big movie with these big people. And he says, up, oh, goodbye, Hollywood. <gasps> he gave up Hollywood for the military. At first, he was rejected because he was underweight. No. But he was working with a trainer. 
He was able to get in shape and then get into the army. Uh, and a friend asked him why he was giving up Hollywood such a glamorous thing to enlist in the army. And this is what he said. He said, this country's conscience is bigger than all the studios in Hollywood put together. And the time will come when we'll have to fight. He was drafted in March 1941. Now, remember the key, what we're honoring this week is Pearl Harbor Day. And that came December 1941. So he actually joined the military before Pearl Harbor. And from then, he stayed in active duty to 1946, taking a pause from his Hollywood career. And he joined the Army Air Force after he was drafted in March of 1941. And the Air Force was part of the Army, believe it or not, this time they call it the Army Air Force. Now it's its own separate thing. And he fought in World War II. He was a seventh generation of his family to do so. His great-great-great-grandfather, all the way down to him, all fought, including members who fought in the Spanish-American War, World War I, among other wars. And he had already logged over 400 hours of flying as a civilian. So he received a commission after Pearl Harbor. But what did they want to do with Jimmy Stewart? I think to protect him. I think they didn't want someone great from Hollywood getting killed or whatever. So they made him a flight instructor at Moffett Field in California. He was incensed. He was 38 years old. So uh, there was also that too. They, they wanted younger guys to go and fight, but he wanted to fight. He wanted to go into World War II. He wanted to make a difference. And he actually put pressure on the army to let him fight. And they resisted. They had him making films for them. They had him doing all sorts of things. But in 1943, he finally got his wish and was sent to England to lead the 703rd Bombardier Squadron. And on March 31st, 1944, he began flying combat missions. He was appointed operations officer of the 453rd Bomb Group and subsequently chief of staff of the 2nd Combat Wing and then 2nd Air Division of the 8th Air Force. He flew 20 combat missions over Germany as squadron leader of the B-24 Bomber Pilots. And just so you know, most air crews at that time were usually killed between their 8th mission and their 12th mission, and he flew 20. So he was definitely risking his life. There is a possibility, a strong possibility, we could have been without the great Jimmy Stewart after World War II. And what a difference Hollywood and the world would be without him. This shows what a great pilot he was, though, that he survived and got his crews through those missions, although he did lose some men. He was awarded many medals, including two distinguished flying crosses and the Croix de Guerre. Now, I did take French, but I don't really know how to pronounce that, and I've looked it up trying to figure it out, so just bear with me on that one. He rose up through the ranks from private to become a colonel by war's end. What is also not commonly known about him is what an amazing military recruiter he was during the war. I was up late due to poor health a few days ago and was watching Turner Classic Movies. And I was watching their little short films they show between the movies, and there he was, landing a fighter plane. He got out, took off some of his pilot gear and began pitching a recruiting pitch for young men. And that's all they allowed then to join the Army Air Force. Looks like I'm back in the movies again, don't I? Well, as a matter of fact, I like to do some talking. Don't go away until I get this thing off.
Now, it isn't as if it was a chore for me to talk to you because I want to speak on my favorite subject, the Army Air Forces. I can't speak from long experience. I've only been in the service a year, but I've learned a lot about what the Air Forces have to offer. That's what I want to talk to you about. Right now, the greatest mass mobilization in the history of the world is taking place. Men from cities, towns, farms, married men and single men, brothers, sweethearts, husbands, fathers and sons, businessmen and workers from the factories, and students from colleges and high schools all over America. They're mobilizing, joining up, or having their numbers pulled out of a fishbowl. And this war we're fighting today and tomorrow and the next day until we win is a war of the air. The whole world knows that. Our factories know that. So interceptors, pursuit ships, light bombers, medium bombers, and flying fortresses are rolling out of those factories. 65,000 fighting planes this year. 100,000 fighting planes next year. And to keep them flying, two million men. Now, now that's where you come in. The Army Air Forces need 15,000 captains, 40,000 lieutenants, 35,000 flying sergeants. Well, how about it? Well, let's talk it over. Now, make no mistake about this thing, fellas. We're all going to be in this war soon, sooner than a lot of you realize. And nearly all the officers of this great Army Air Force that they're building today are going to be drawn from the ranks of you men, from high schools and colleges, those who join as aviation cadets now. He was so good, I wanted to join at that point. He made points about how great the Air Force was as a fighting unit, how great it was to be a pilot, how great it was to be in the camaraderie of the Air Force personnel outside of wartime. My oldest son was ready to sign up. I recorded this and showed it to him. After I showed him this video, he went to visit a military recruiter soon after. Yes! No kidding. Therefore, the great Jimmy Stewart is still recruiting to this day. I was so impressed by his abilities in this way. I am certain he helped our fighting cause. In fact, six million men volunteered for the war during World War II that weren't drafted, just to let you know. Without these volunteers, we probably would not have won World War II. So in Colonel James Stewart, I see a hero. And he was featured on the cover of Life magazine in his uniform in 1945. And his uniform now from World War II is on display in the National Air Force Museum. Not only is he on display here, but he's also on display in England as well. Following the war, he was truly a hero, but he went right back to making movies. On his first movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you may have heard of it, was a box office bust, believe it or not. And it wasn't because of the quality of the movie, certainly, but because of the competition it had at the box office the moment it came out. He still earned an Oscar nomination for this movie, but this movie has gone on to become the most famous Christmas movie in history. It is listed as the 20th greatest movie in history by the American Film Institute. And this film reminds us all how important we are to each other and how we rely on each other for so many things in life. This movie has become so endearing to so many people that they watch it every single Christmas or during the holidays. And Stuart himself 
put all of himself into this movie. He was racked with guilt about the war, about lives that were lost. He channeled these feelings into powerful performance in later films, but most especially in this one. Mm. He never really spoke about his wartime experiences, but you could see some of it come out on film. In 1949, he married Gloria McQueen. They had twin daughters together. She had two sons from a previous marriage. One of them was lost to the Vietnam War. Yet you never heard Jimmy Stewart protest or espouse anger against our government. To him, you were always a good soldier. During the 1950s, he broadened his roles and collaborated with some of the greatest directors of his time, such as Alfred Hitchcock, Cecil B. DeMille, Billy Wilder, Anthony Mann, John Ford, and Otto Preminger. In 1955, Stewart was the top male performer at the box office and in the top five for several years after. He received another Oscar nomination for the film many considered his signature role, Harvey. This has become one of my favorite movies of all time of his. It shows that you don't have to walk around jaded, tired, and angry to be an adult. Yes. You can have a little kid inside of you and have a little fun. Be nice to people. Show kindness. Show compassion, love others, and be yourself. Yes. And let those who love be loved. And those who do it live the longest and have the best lives. That's what I have figured out. And Jimmy Stewart's film successes would continue right in the 1970s by starring in such acclaimed films such as Shenandoah, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Shootist, Fire Creek, The Cheyenne Social Club, and the most beloved of all, at least to me, and perhaps one of the best films ever made, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, starring Jimmy Stewart and one of my heroes, John Wayne. This last film, both he and John Wayne should have received Academy Awards for, frankly. It turned out to be a film achievement for John Ford, the director, and the director who received the most Academy Awards of all time. He also had his own television series, The Jimmy Stewart Show, and played the recurring role of Hawkins in the mystery movie of the week. In 1991, he made his last movie, An American Tale, Fievel Goes West, where he played a sheriff in the movie. The name was Wiley, based on the famous American sheriff, Wyatt Earp. Now, what many do not know is that he was a key military figure as well. And I do mean after the war. He was promoted to Brigadier General of the Air Force on July 23rd, 1959. And you are hearing this correctly. He stayed in the Air Force after the war. He stayed in through all of those acting accomplishments. He stayed in through all of those Oscars and everything else that he earned. He stayed in the Air Force Reserve after World War II, serving in differing capacities through the Korean and Vietnam Wars until officially retiring in May of 1968 as a full Brigadier General. And the only reason he retired in 1968 is he was at mandatory retirement age. Otherwise, I don't think he would left. Before the end of his career, he was even flying observation missions over Vietnam. Sadly, Jimmy Stewart died on July the 2nd, 1997. How he will be remembered is as a talented actor, of course, and now you know as a brave military hero. But he was also a loving husband, married 45 years to the same wife, a good father, a giant among men. 
The Boy Scouts present an award in his name and have so since 2003, the James M. Stewart Good Citizenship Award. Statues across America and stamps have been issued in his honor. He leaves behind a legacy of honesty, hard work, and strong values that is bestowed upon him by almost anyone who ever met him. He was a good man. He was a loyal citizen and indeed had the wonderful life that that movie taught us all to appreciate. For all his hard work trying to help America win World War II, for his work trying to help America unite through his many movies showing both sides of the coin, letting us look not at just one side, but at both. Jimmy Stewart was a man who brought America together in so many ways. I cannot list them all here. I don't have time in this podcast. You see two sides to every coin in movies like Harvey, Shenandoah, and Broken Arrow. Vastly different movies in a lot of ways. He had the choice to make those films. He was certainly no starving actor. For his desire to continue fighting for his country well after the fact that his movie career was strong and well-established, he is definitely a hero. For his desire to use his star position to recruit Americans to join the war effort even before Pearl Harbor and defeat the evil that was Nazi Germany and for teaching us that truth, integrity, and doing the right thing the right way are what's best while portraying heroes like Glenn Miller and Carbine Williams from opposite ends of the spectrum, showing us that the underdog, not necessarily the top dog, can win. We love and appreciate the uniting force of a truly great American hero, Jimmy Stewart. And in this case, he got his wings down here on Earth as an Air Force pilot. But in 1997, as he was welcomed into heaven, you could hear a bell ringing somewhere down here on Earth and echoing up as a new angel with extraordinary standards, got his wings in a completely different way. And heaven received a humble gentleman who always tried to do the right thing. Coming up next, we will discuss former President Trump. No, not Trump himself. But if he is the nominee from the Republican Party again, who would he select as a running mate? As he is pulled ahead in the polls, and he seems to be ahead as the nominee, who will he select as his running mate? if he appears to be the front runner for the presidency of the United States again. We will discuss in this next feature. Stay with us.
I personally do not want another Trump versus Biden battle for the presidency. I would like to see some younger, fresher choices for the presidency as we have some serious problems to solve. And it is apparent to me that Biden doesn't have the capacity to solve them. In fact, I'm not sure he has the capacity for a lot of things at this point. I was looking at Nikki Haley or maybe one of the other younger, fresher individuals as a problem solver, as somebody who could step in and help us solve real crises that we have going on in this country. And I'm not just talking about inflation. I'm talking about things that go down to the culture and the moral fiber of this country that are tearing us apart, that are putting us into problems that we do not need. Looking at Nikki Haley, she's been a governor, she's been an ambassador, but she is trailing President Trump. And frankly, Trump is ahead overall in this race, both in the Republican primary and he's now ahead of Biden across the country. I look at polls every day and in every poll I look at, he's pulling away, he's far away, he's jumped way ahead. He's ahead in states he shouldn't be ahead in. He's ahead in states that he is further ahead than he's supposed to be in, Uh, or he's close in states that he should be nowhere near Biden in. And so this is Trump's baby to lose at this point, just about 11 months away from the election. (laughs) So if Trump is going to be the president again, possibly, who would he select as a running mate? This is what's been going through my mind. And this is our discussion in this week's segment, The Race the polls, and the political trolls. Who would Trump select as his running mate? Mm. Kevin McCarthy just announced that former President Donald Trump should choose Nikki Haley as his running mate. Yes! Wow. (laughs) I personally think this would be a real winning combination. With Trump's age and his brash politics and his style, I think this might soothe some of the people who don't like the way he led as president and some of the way he speaks. She's moderate. And frankly, she's a better politician, knowing how to correctly say things in a political way rather than the Trumpian way, the taking the hammer to political speech, as I like to say. She would be a much more soothing way of handling our political speech. Selecting someone like Haley or maybe another good general election type candidate would bring in more moderate voters. Mm. But you also need to have, when you select a running mate, when you select a vice president, someone who's gonna help you win a certain demographic or a certain core of voters. Maybe you pick a Southern candidate because you think you're gonna help win the South as Kennedy did with Lyndon Johnson. Or you pick a Northern candidate like Jimmy Carter did, picking Walter Mondale from the northern state of Minnesota to help you win the North. Or you pick a conservative candidate, more conservative than you, because you think that's going to bring in more conservative voters, like McCain did, going all the way to Alaska to select Sarah Palin. Or you do the opposite of that. Ronald Reagan did that with George H.W. Bush. He picked the more moderate George H.W. Bush as his running mate because he thought that would bring in the more moderate Republicans and specifically the more Northeast moderate Republicans, which it did, frankly, for him uh, during the 1980 
election. In fact, Reagan and Bush was a perfect combination. And there's been a few perfect combinations like that throughout history. I do think Trump-Pence was okay, but not really a perfect combination because they were both older white men from the north, northeastern area, and it just wasn't a a great combo. They're both really conservative, and I don't think it was the best uh, combination. It turned out to be a winning one, but I think it could have been a better combo had Trump chosen a better running mate uh, from a selection standpoint. Certainly, if Trump picked a better running mate, it could sway more voters. Can even sway me depending on how he does it and how he runs his campaign. I liked Trump as president in the way he ran the government. I did not like the way he ran his mouth. I did not like him as a politician. Let's make that perfectly clear. He's a businessman. Yeah. He saw parts of our country running into the ground, i.e. our infrastructure, our military, our inner cities, and wanted to make it all better as president. The problem is he runs a campaign with a jackhammer and he just sees all sorts of things and he just speaks about it. And that's not the way politics goes. You can't just say anything you want anytime you want. You can't throw your first thought that you get in the morning when you get up on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever you are using for a social media platform. You can't do that. That's not the way politics is. Actually, really, you should run the thought processes through your head first, then through your advisors, then through those who are helping you run the government and think about it and then do it. And that's the way politics is. That's really the way it should be done correctly because it shouldn't just be one person running a country. It should be a group of people running a country. That's why you have a cabinet to begin with. And the cabinet should help you run the country. It should not be one person running the country as a dictatorial president. It should be a group. And that's what Reagan did so well. He talked with his cabinet. He listened to his cabinet. He considered things they said. Sometimes he would go with his gut and his thoughts. And other times he'd run it through his cabinet and change his mind completely. And that's what we should do when we're president of the United States. It was wrong of him to do it otherwise. And let's put it this way. If you get the right kind of VP when you're running for president, they should be able to push you one way or the other. Yes. And they should push you in the right direction. The left fought Trump as president because they feared how well he would do. The left in this country were afraid of how well he would do and were afraid that he would win and gain power for the Republican Party because he was a moderate (gasps) Republican, believe it or not. He had voted Democrat for many years. He had given money to Democrat causes. (gasps) Trump did. I know this may sound shocking to a lot of you because you don't know his real history. But if you go back and look at the real history of President Trump, that's what you will see. As he gained power, though, his mouth and his Twitter account began to ruin him as president. And his complete disruption, his complete ruination came in the way he handled the COVID crisis. And it was his downfall. But he has a chance to make up for it now. In his campaign, if he stays on point and quits calling people names, stays on top of things, stops doing things that causes stir and gives fodder to his enemies, he might do something, do something different, do something better. (sighs) I would still rather see new choices, though. I do not want Trump or Biden to be president. They're both 
either approaching 80 years old or over 80 years old. Why can't we get somebody new, somebody fresh, somebody different? Most of our presidents have been in their 50s and 60s. Why can't we get somebody like that? But let's take a look at who Trump might select if Trump is the next Republican nominee for president. So let's look Nikki Haley first. She would be my first choice at this point. She is Indian American. She's from a Southern state. She went to Clemson University and Trump is from a Northern state. So that's a great match. She has the leadership experience serving as a governor and an ambassador. She's conservative, but more moderate on some issues than Trump. She has not criticized him like the others have running against him. So that, that makes them a great pairing. She could bring in more women to vote for Trump, which Trump needs. Yes! She did not endorse him in 2016, but she served in his administration as ambassador. She is a great debater. So a VP face-off with Kamala Harris would be very interesting and probably a great debate. She will help with independent voters and Trump is leading with them in most polls already. So that would just push them even higher. There are so many advantages to having her as a running mate that I can't list them all here. And I think that it is to the point that I think she would be an excellent running mate. Ah. Another good one would be Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate. He has been in the House and in the Senate. He knows Washington well. Mm. He knows how to fundraise well. He's very well liked. He's very well respected. And frankly, he is believed in. He's a faith-based politician. If he endorses Trump and jumps on the ticket, it could pull in evangelicals who ditched him somewhat in the last election, in that 2020 election, some evangelicals moved away from Trump. It would certainly shore up some of the anti-abortion voters who might have chosen to either vote Democrat or sit out the 2020 election. Yes. He was not very strong though, that is Tim Scott, in the debates. So a potential face-off against Kamala Harris would be maybe not so good, <sighs> but I wouldn't say it would be terrible. He's not a terrible debater. He's just not a great debater. He has been outspoken for African-American causes, and this would be a direct gain for Trump, who is gaining an African-American support, period. Yes. In this last battleground poll done by CNN and the New York Times, he showed 22%, the highest maybe ever polled in this type of polling for a Republican. And it's certainly up from the 2020 election, which only showed 8%. This would be the highest support that I have seen maybe perhaps since Reagan. Marco Rubio, on the other hand, let's go to another potential candidate that could be critically good for Trump. Mm -hmm. He has run for president, so a very experienced candidate, a very good debater. He is a lawyer, getting degrees from Florida and also from Miami. He is Catholic. That could bring in another demographic. He has been outspoken as both pro-Israel and anti-Putin, which makes him very up-to-date. He is a fluent Spanish speaker and of Cuban heritage. Uh. His outreach to the Latino community would be extraordinarily helpful. Yes! Among Latinos in the same New York Times CNN battleground poll, Biden was only ahead of Trump by an astounding 4%. <sighs> in the 2020 election, he won this demographic by 33%. He and Trump have been quietly close for years, talking about Rubio, and I think this would make him 
a seriously good candidate for this job. Something that's not well known, Trump was considering him for Secretary of State if he had won a second term. He worked so well with Trump during the first term that some have even nicknamed him the Secretary of State to Latin America because he gave Trump such good advice on how to talk with Latin American countries. Rubio is a true conservative, but not in the same style as Trump. So he would help pull in some conservatives from the South, but like I said, from a different style as Trump. Trump is more the brash conservative, whereas Rubio is more of the intellectual conservative, the self-styled independent conservative. They would make a good match. Rick Scott would be another excellent mm-hmm. running mate for Trump. He has been a two-term governor of Florida and currently a senator. He began his career by heading a successful healthcare company. There would be some pairing there of both of them having a good, successful business background. He ran Columbia, which is now Columbia HCA. He also ran another healthcare company. He has a law degree. He served in the Navy, which would bring in excellent background there that Trump doesn't have. He would bring in the Southern vote, and he would certainly help carry Florida for Trump. Ah. But I am not sure how else he would help voters. He doesn't really carry any other demographics. He's an older white man, and I don't know how else that would help Trump, because that's what Trump is. And Trump has a home in Florida. He's liked by Florida voters already, so I'm not, I'm really not sure how else Rick Scott would help Trump. Now, Byron Donalds is an interesting candidate. This is one of my sort of renegade or outside thoughts for Trump. I think this guy might be an excellent pick for vice president. He's a congressman from Florida. Mm -hmm. He went to Florida State. He is black and he would add racial diversity to the ticket in a time when Trump, again, is beginning to gain in polls with African-Americans. He would pull in votes there. And Trump has spoke admiringly of Donald's. The one big drawback here would be his political inexperience because he has just barely been elected to Congress and he ran for Speaker of the House and did not win. So he hasn't really had the political know-how and the extended political victories that would bring the experience to the ticket that the ticket really needs. Trump having had only one political victory of his life, and that was for president of the United States, which most people do not ever have in their lifetime. Trump really needs a Washington winner on the ticket with him. Somebody who has won some offices with him there. So someone who I think would add that to the ticket, but There are a few drawbacks. Here's a wild card that many have not considered. Rick Perry. He's a four-term governor of Texas, really popular in Texas. And adding him to the ticket would all but assure Texas, which is essential for Trump to win. He must have Texas. He, If he loses Texas, Trump cannot win the presidency. He served in Trump's administration as Secretary of Energy. He has tons of experience running for president twice. He's a good debater. Again, he was four-term governor of Texas, so he's run multiple times there. He was also the lieutenant governor of Texas. He was in the military. He graduated from Texas A&M. He's also been ag commissioner in Texas. So lots of political victories, which would add that experience to the ticket. Howdy. I will tell you, though, 
um, all of you non-Texans, and this is a little political secret, the real power in Texas lies with the lieutenant governor, which is why once Rick Perry won the governorship, he kept it for so long. He knew how to run the state. Once you've become lieutenant governor in Texas, you really know how to run the state of Texas. All of that goes back to reconstruction, and I will try to explain that in a later podcast, but not today. In any case, Perry brings in Southerners and also the big prize, Texas. And he has a little bit of a renegade individualism to him. He'll bring in a different kind of conservative. He's also a little bit of an intellectual. But here's the big drawback with Rick Perry. He's 78 years old. And Trump and Rick Perry would be two old white guys on the ticket. And the worries that people have about Biden being too old, Kamala Harris, part of that is, well, she's young enough. If something happens to Biden, we're still okay. If something happens to Trump, well, then you have another guy who's older on the ticket. So I don't think that would allay those fears. So those are some of the people that I think you could consider. There's several others, and most of them are really pro-Trump people that a lot of people have thrown out there. I don't think that Trump is going to pick someone like that, like a Carrie Lake or somebody that's a, a Trumpian that's in his pocket. Trump just doesn't think that way. Trump thinks on his own. I would not be surprised if who he picks is someone totally out of left field that no one sees coming, especially the left-wing media. I would not surprise to see him pick someone who is totally different from himself. I would not see him picking someone exactly like himself. I would think he's gonna go younger and different. Yes. And if I were advising him, I would advise him to pick either Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley. But we will see where this goes. In any case, it will be fun to watch if he gets the nomination, who he's gonna pick. But Iowa is still the key. And Haley and DeSantis have been making inroads there like crazy, especially DeSantis, who had a dynamite matchup with Gavin Newsom from California. If you haven't seen the debate, you should watch it. In any case, DeSantis, I think, torched Gavin Newsom. And it shows DeSantis's ability to do things like that. And it might push DeSantis a little bit higher up that rung in Iowa. It makes Iowa very interesting at this point. Mm. And if any of the other candidates start throwing their weight, either towards Haley or towards DeSantis, watch out. Trump could get in a bind for the nomination. And we will see how this race goes. If he doesn't get past the Republican nomination, he could always run as an independent. But I don't think Trump has a chance as an independent versus running on the Republican ticket. Anyway, we will see how the race, the polls, and all the little political trolls running around trying to push one candidate or the other get this figured out. Well, stay with us. We have some funny moments coming (laughs) in our last few segments. (laughs) What did our president say just recently? And we have some new segments where we recommend a great film and we'll tell you about an inspiring quote that is so apropos for today. Please stay with us.
We hope you have enjoyed our program so far today. If you have, please tell a friend, send them a link to listen, tell them about it, and let us know on Facebook, or tell us if you enjoyed it on our Facebook page. Please. At Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Well, our president let it loose this week when he went abroad. We have some funny quotes from him in our next tidbit we call our honorary Dan Quayle moment of the week. Joe Biden is up to his old antics again. Many think President Biden is too old to be president. I am one of them. And frankly, there are some reasons why. In a 23-minute sort of crazy speech that he made in South Korea, he had some great gaffes as well as some head scratchers where I can't even figure out what he's talking about. Could he have blown up his campaign with this crazy business? Maybe in the long run, but one of the comments he started with was, quote, look, my Marine has a code to blow up the world, end quote. (laughs) Referring to the political football that the president has carried with him by a trusted military aide. Now, by political football, we mean this briefcase thing that has all the nuclear codes to send nuclear missiles launching at other nations across the world, primarily Russia. And... Why in the world he would make a joke like that, I have no idea. It's absolutely stupid. That's the one thing we don't joke about. I'm sorry, Mr. President, but nukes are not something you ever joke about, especially when you are the president of the United States. If Trump had made these same jokes as president, the media would have exploded and been calling for him to resign. Yes. He then referred to South Korean leader as Mr. Moon as he said he was friends with him. The current South Korean leader is Yoon Suk Yul, and he was referring to the former leader, and he didn't exactly refer to him correctly. In some kind of planned attack on Laurent Boebert, apparently, he made a reference to Trump. He said we can use a tax quote to, quote, strengthen the Social Security and Medicare system instead of cutting them like Congressman Trump and Boebert want to do, end quote. (gasps) Trump never served in Congress. So I hope Biden does not blow us all up. Yes. I hope he knows South Korea is not making nukes. And I truly hope he knows Trump was never in Congress. And in a great finish, Biden claimed he cut the federal deficit by a whopping $7 billion. Don't you feel great about that? Wow. I feel great. That makes me feel a lot better. The national debt is $33.8 trillion. And up over six trillions just since Biden took office. Thanks for that seven billion, Mr. President. But I think we need a little more. And indeed, he was off. So anyway, that's where Mr. Biden was this week, President Biden. So I think we need to um, reassess, is President Biden too old? And you can actually find that 23-minute speech where he goes way off and says all sorts of crazy things and repeats himself and does all sorts of stuff. But really, that would destroy most presidents' campaigns. But because the media does a lot of ignoring with President Biden, probably in some ways because of his age, he gets a pass and he shouldn't get a pass. And on things like joking about nuclear weapons... He should not get a pass. No. And we shouldn't let him do that. And now at the end of our show each week, we will feature a couple of really short segments. In the first, about the movies. 
And we're not going to shove politics in your face. In fact, we're going to do the opposite of that. We're going to look for movies where we can escape politics. In fact, escape the world and just be entertained like previous generations did. They understood that that's what movies were all about. Go to the movies and be entertained. Just escape. But over the last 30 years, we have been adding politics into the movies more and more. Politics in the outside world. So instead of being entertained, you go to the movies and you get more and more of that crap shoved into your face. Well, let's talk about a movie that entertains us, but also teaches us a great moral. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. In this new segment we call Cinema That Protects Us From Political Correctness. And the movie we're going to talk about is a movie I love called Midway, which is very fitting for a week involving remembering Pearl Harbor. This movie was made in 2019 and tells the story of the Battle of Midway as literally told by the leaders and the sailors who fought in the battle. They tried to be very historically accurate with this movie. Some of the Battle of Midway was actually filmed as a documentary by John Ford himself. Not a lot of people realize this. There were eyewitness accounts and actual footage John Ford shot that they used in making this movie. In the words of Dennis Quaid, who starred in this film, people do not go to the movies to see things. They go to feel things. And I feel in this movie, you will definitely feel it because you are placed into history at the very sides of the young men who are fighting for their lives and who are sacrificing, not just their lives in some cases, but in other cases, years of their youth that they will never get back. And it's given to ensure that the future is secure and in the hands of liberty and justice. And they accomplish that. And Roland Emmerich, who directs the film, delivers that in a very powerful way. One which you definitely both will feel, but you'll literally feel like you're living through it. With our fighting men of the greatest generation, in one of the greatest battles of all time of World War II. The film is directed by the outstanding director, Roland Emmerich, and he's known for Independence Day and Stargate, among many others. And it stars Patrick Wilson, Woody Harrelson, Mandy Moore, Ed Screen, Luke Evans, and Dennis Quaid, among many others. I would highly recommend this film for its authentic remembrance of this important battle and staying away from trying to change history or rewrite history or make it politically correct. It just tells you the story, which is what it should do. But yet it also teaches you history, yet it also entertains you. It takes you to that point in history and it tells you, hey, this is what happened here. These are the heroes that we should honor. They weren't perfect people. They were flawed people, in fact. But this is why we should honor them, because you are able to sit in this movie theater today because of these brave heroes. You're not under Japanese control today because of these brave heroes. And so that's why I love this movie. You should watch it with your family to help them remember the important events surrounding both Pearl Harbor and World War II, because they do relate together. And as part of our last segment, we're going to call it a super inspired quote or a big fat political joke. So each week you'll hear a 
super inspired quote that I think inspired me. And it could be something from a current leader or politician or something from a past leader or politician. Or it could be a big, fat political joke that I heard this week. And in this case, I looked into a quote that I heard and I want to run it by you and see what you think. The quote is, you can ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. End quote. Do you know who said this? Does this sound like Benjamin Netanyahu or an Israeli leader? Somebody from the military in Israel? Well, you would be wrong because this was said by Winston Churchill during World War II in reference to Germany. But think about what this quote could mean today and how it could inspire the Jews in Israel today who are trying to endure people who want to wipe them from the face of the earth and what they feel in trying to simply live. If I were on an island like Churchill was, surrounded by those who wanted to kill me, I would have the same attitude. And I am inspired by Winston Churchill constantly, everything that I've read about him. Because without Winston Churchill, the world would look very different. The British wanted to surrender or come to some sort of detente with Germany. And if they had, we would have a completely different world. We would. The Nazis would rule in all sorts of places and you would see all these sick things that would have gone on. But instead, you have a different world. And I don't want terrorists to win in the same way. No! And we must have an attitude like Mr. Churchill did. And we must have that toward the terrorists in the same way he had toward the Nazis. We must win. Yes! And we must have that attitude constantly, pervasively, and without stopping. That is what Mr. Churchill did, and that's why the British survived. That's why they are there today. It wasn't just the United States coming along and entering World War II. It certainly helped, but they withstood it first, and they stood their ground until they did get help eventually, but they stood their ground against Germany. They never gave in. And that is all we have for you today. We hope you have enjoyed the show. I want to thank KB in production, Mark, our editor, and of course, Will J, our great announcer. Please let us know your thoughts by telling us about them on Facebook. If they are really bizarre, we might just look the other way, but we still care. And perhaps share this program with a friend. Send them a link. Just jot down some comments on whatever platform you may catch us on. You can hear us on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Boomplay, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and Podchaser. We will be back next week with more, including the story of a woman who fought off racial prejudice to become one of the greatest singers in all of history, (gasps) selling more than 40 million records before her death. But she had to have help from somebody. That person being Marilyn Monroe before she broke out into the big time. Who am I talking about? Find out next week in our Great American Heroes feature. Also, we talk about the chances for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to win in Iowa. 
New Hampshire, or South Carolina. What are the realistic chances at this point for anyone to win in any of those early states over Trump? Mm. Could someone overtake Trump in any state, in any win for the Republican nomination? And if they do win, what might happen? Could they take the Republican nomination from Trump? We will discuss further next week. And as always, thank you again for listening to this podcast. We truly appreciate each and every listener. And please join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. Politics.